For many people, exercise is a chore. For others, including myself and today's guest, exercise is a gift. I'll be speaking today with Dr. Rachel Pajednik. She's an expert on the health benefits of physical activity. In our chat, we separate fact from fiction on what exercise can deliver and what it takes to cash in on those benefits. We dig into weight loss, healthy aging, metabolic health, and more. Ultimately, what we want is to help other people open themselves up to the gift of exercise. Dr. Pajednik wears many hats. She's a teacher, a researcher, a spin instructor, a science communicator, and much more. She holds a PhD from Tufts University in Biochemical and Molecular Nutrition and Exercise Physiology, as well as a Master's of Education in Physical Education and Coaching. Dr. Pajednik is currently an Assistant Professor of Nutrition at Simmons and is a former Research Fellow at the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine at Harvard Medical School. I should say that we also get into a discussion of what lifestyle medicine really is. Dr. Pajednik and I have been following each other on social media for quite some time, but this is our first live chat, and I hope you'll enjoy getting to know her as much as I did. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Rachel, thank you very much for agreeing to have a chat today. We have a lot to cover and I can't wait to dig in. My pleasure. Excited to be here. So I wanted to start just by sort of figuring out where you sit in the whole world of, you know, medicine and medical education. So can you talk about what you view as your home base and how how you're situated relative to other aspects of medicine and, and health education? Yeah, so um, I'm an educator by training, which is really interesting and different for people in my field. So my first degree was a master's in education. I was a teacher in middle school for several years. Yeah, and so um, when I went back to get my graduate degree in nutrition um, at Tufts, it's in biochemical and molecular nutrition, I really wanted to, you know, use that education to get the deep knowledge of both nutrition and exercise, which was my background prior to that. But my passion has always been in teaching and in educating. And so I wanted to take that knowledge and really transfer it into a new um, student base, which was healthcare professionals. And so I was really um, excited to be able to do a postdoc at Harvard Medical School with the Institute of Lifestyle Medicine. And their main mission is to educate physicians on Uh, the tenets of lifestyle medicine, so nutrition, exercise, self-care, and behavior change. And so that really went from, you know, my very deep uh, work in vitamin D and muscle um, all the way out to educating um, and science communication um, around how we actually talk to uh, students about this and educate them, but then even more importantly, how healthcare professionals talk to their patients about these really important behaviors. Mm-hmm. Can you can you uh, throw out a definition of lifestyle medicine? Because I have to admit, for me, I have this association between lifestyle medicine and alternative medicine. And, and, um, and so I understand there's definitely a distinction between the two. Yeah. So these are really different um, uh, bodies of education, of research. Um, lifestyle medicine is actually very new and really encompasses 
health behaviors. So when you think about exercise, nutrition, stress reduction, sleep, um, a little bit of substance use um, often gets that's put in there as well. Um, but really, it's about changing behaviors from you know unhealthy behaviors to more healthy um, patterns of behavior. Alternative mm-hmm. medicine is um, used in um, a, a very different way where it's used um, as an alternative to traditional um, medical practices. What we're thinking about with lifestyle medicine is that A, it's a preventive tool, um, first of all, to prevent these diseases, but then can also be used in conjunction with um, traditional medicine in order to have beneficial outcomes. So you might want to think of it more as a complementary style of medicine, um, but really it's, it's behaviors. Um, so there's not any you know, supplements, there's not any drugs that are involved, although we certainly don't disavow that in lifestyle medicine. Um, it's really just you know, changing behaviors around it in order to help complement the, the traditional medicine that people need. So I assume that you know, this lifestyle medicine holds the same kind of evidence standards as traditional medicine. So maybe you can just share some of the ways, um, some of the benefits that people stand to gain from changing their behaviors towards physical activity. And and maybe that probably means you need to dive into a little bit of aspects of physical activity because it's a broad term. Yeah. So I love that you use the word evidence-based. I think that's one thing that's really important about the lifestyle medicine group. But physical activity just generally means moving your body. And it can be anything from gardening and taking a walk and dancing all the way out to training for a marathon. So it could be all of those things. It could be walking to work or biking to, you know, wherever you go during the day. So all of those things are going to be physical activity. And that's really different than exercise, Mm -hmm. which I think that two of them get put together, especially in just sort of you know, normal people's brains is that they think uh, physical activity has to be exercise. Mm-hmm. And so exercise is much more structured. Um, it's, you know, time-based, it's perhaps weight-based, there are fitness outcomes that are associated with it. And when we think about physical activity, especially as a behavior that is going to be beneficial for health, um, we're not necessarily talking about exercise, we're simply talking about people moving their bodies and contracting okay. their muscles. How much are the benefits of physical activity a function of sedentariness being toxic and that you're sort of removing yourself from the sedentary state versus, you know, it's the being active itself? I'm curious about your thoughts on that distinction. Yeah, I think it's a really important distinction. So when we look at the body of literature, we're really looking at two different um, avenues of investigation. So one is sedentary behavior, which looks at not moving your body much And the other is the benefits of physical activity. And I think Mm -hmm. what you're talking about is this sort of Venn diagram of, you know, the intersection between removing the sedentary behavior and adding physical activity, and then knowing that there's just general benefits of physical activity on top of, you know, not moving your body in general. So if we were to tease the two apart, sedentary behavior, and I, um, forgive me, I'm a muscle person. Um, All of my research is in muscle. So I tend to lean on that tissue hard with my Mm -hmm. examples. But one of the things is when you think about sedentary behavior, and you're not contracting your muscles, added to this, you know, standard American diet that we have, which we know is pretty problematic, very high in sugar, 
if you're not moving your body and you're just sitting around during the day and you are also eating this diet, which again, goes hand in hand, um, you're going to have real problems with things like glucose metabolism. You're going to end up with the diseases of our time, type two diabetes, um, you know, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, perhaps even cancer. Um, and then what we see is that when you start to move your body and contract those muscles, you can really utilize those fuels that are circulating around in your body so that they are not at these toxic levels while also doing really wonderful things like regenerating your tissue, um, stimulating uh, blood vessel growth, uh, balancing your hormones. That's such a buzzword right now in the fitness wellness world, but um, it actually is true in the um, exercise world. Um, and so when you see all of these things, yes, you are going to benefit from moving your body, physical activity, and then there's a spectrum from there. So when you stop, um, uh, you know, sitting during the day and start moving your body, you will see benefit as you exercise more. And the research is up to about 300 minutes a day, uh, excuse me, 300 minutes a week, not a day. <laughs> that would be a lot of exercise. Um, 300 minutes a week, then um, you see all of the the sort of like spectrum of benefits from a health perspective that you can get with moving your body. What, what's the sort of shape of the curve? Like, is it is it return on investments or is it m the most uh, from zero to starting to move yeah. or is it linear? Yeah. So there's been a lot of really good research on this. And one of the slides, I wish I could like show you a PowerPoint presentation right now. But one of the slides that I really love the most is... Um, Basically, it's, it's a, a curve where within about an hour of physical activity per week, so that's 60 minutes over the week, you see approximately 20% um, improvement in mortality and other, um, other health outcomes. And then it kind of flattens out a little bit, out to about 300, and you, 300 minutes. And what you'll see is benefits up to 300, but it's not nearly as dramatic as that first 60 minutes. So mm. that first 60 minutes up to about 150 minutes per day is the recommendation. And then between 150 and 300 minutes per day, I keep saying that 300 minutes per week, excuse me, uh, you'll see um, increased benefit, but not nearly as dramatic as that first 60 minutes per week. It's hard to wrap your head around that being causally linked. You know, how can yeah. 10 minutes a day or, or is there is there a correlative explanation and have the randomized trials been done to prove that it is causative versus sort of correlative? Uh, great question. And yes, both have been done. Um, so we don't have a really perfect um, prescription, we'll say, for individual humans. So some people are going to benefit a little bit differently depending on what type of exercise they're doing, the length of time. Um, generally, what we see is that 10 minutes per day, those 10-minute bouts seem to be the minimum amount that you'll need in order to see benefit. But there's also some pretty decent data that shows, you know, if you get 60 minutes in, you know, a walk or a jog or a bike ride that you do on Saturday and very little throughout the rest of the week, that that can also be beneficial. There also, and this goes back to your question about sedentary behavior, is some really interesting data looking at sedentary behavior throughout the day. So there's a couple of interesting papers that show, and I think this is a little bit more correlational, there isn't really randomized control trials that, that examine this, um, that you know the longer that you sit throughout the day in um, sort of a continuous fashion, 
mm-hmm. the more detriment um, or the uh, more detrimental outcomes you're going to see regardless of whether or not you're exercising. So one mm-hmm. of the things that we're looking at now are sort of bursts of movement throughout the day so that you're not sitting for eight hours at a desk, um, but that you are getting up throughout the day. And a lot of that has to do with um, fuel handling, um, particularly glucose. Mm. I was going to, I was going to ask whether it has to do also just with, I don't know, the muscle physiology of, of literally being in the same state with no break from that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's very true. And, you know, if you just think about even, um, you know, contracting your muscles, I, I do it. All. I'm very, um, animated when I talk about this, cause I, it's like when you tell people, you know, you start t- um, doing a lecture about drinking water and like, you can see everybody start drinking the water from their water. Um, same thing happens when you talk about exercise. I'm visualizing my muscles contracting and what you can see when you take a deeper dive into the physiology of that contracting muscle um, is that you can see the benefits. You know, it's it's utilizing fuels appropriately. It's reorganizing the signaling at the deep levels of the muscle so that it is working appropriately. You are bringing blood to those muscles so that you're bringing in the good fuels, taking out the um Uh, the waste products. So all of these things, you know, none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. All of these things are happening at the same time, for sure. Mm -hmm. What would you say are the low hanging fruits in terms of the, the health outcomes that, that benefit most readily from even small amounts of exercise? Yeah, I love this question so much. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, exercise has always been a chore for people used as a weight loss tool. Mm-hmm. And the, it's the most unfortunate marketing of this behavior um, because the benefits are so widespread. So like I've been talking about, you know, just managing uh, blood sugar levels is going to be you know, hugely important, not only for people that have insulin resistance or type, perhaps type 2 diabetes, but for kids that we see, mm-hmm. um, you know, are um, at risk for overweight and obesity at very young ages, um, for brain health, for kids, for middle-aged adults, for older adults, um, for, you know, clearing out the, um, the blood vessels of all of the junk that kind of accumulates both naturally over time and then also due to our, um, you know, unfortunate nutrition habits. So I think all of these things are going to happen. I think the most important thing um, besides the, you know, the elements that we've been talking about is this idea of tissue regeneration. So when you use muscle, when you use other tissues, when you use your brain, you're going to be forcing a regeneration of these tissues through, um, you know, there's many different uh, pathways that, you know, autophagy, uh, uh, apoptosis, all of these things are going to be happening when you are contracting your muscles. Um, and so the signaling in between your tissues to remodel, all of these things are so important. And that tissue regeneration is going to be the key for all of these other things that are happening. How much are the benefits of physical activity specifically about exercise and weight loss? Because that is somewhat controversial. I, I've yeah. been looking a lot at the studies in there. So I'd be curious your synopsis of where things are on that. 
Yeah. So the general wisdom on exercise and weight loss is that it's actually not very helpful. <laughs> um, and it's not because it's, you know, not burning calories or whatever, but there's two big problems that people expect with exercise. And actually this goes hand in hand with nutrition as well. People tend to overestimate how many calories that they have burned in a specific exercise bout, right? So, you know, you expect to burn five, six, seven hundred calories in a spin class when in real life you probably only burned 300 or 350. Meanwhile, you walk out and you grab that protein shake on your way out and that is worth 500 calories, right? <laughs> So you basically put yourself 200 calories in the yeah. hole if we're talking about exercise and weight loss. So there's that component where you tend to overestimate how many calories that you've burned, and so you compensate um, with other food. Then there's specifically the issue of compensation. So not just being like, oh, I can have that because I burned it off, but you get hungry when you exercise. Yeah. So the hungrier you are, the more likely that you are going to eat more. And um a researcher named Tim Church, he's at LSU, did a beautiful study. It was in, I want to say like 2008 or 2009. Mm -hmm. It was featured on the cover of Time Magazine. And basically what he showed was the he put people into different groups and had them exercise at different intensities. And what he found was that the, the exercisers at the very high intensity actually ended up not losing as much weight and some gained weight because they were just starving. They were just, you know... Tissue regeneration is a very yeah. metabolically costly activity. And so your body signals that it needs fuel and that it needs building blocks. And so you're going to eat. So this is why it's problematic. Now, when we talk about exercise and weight loss maintenance, what we see is that it's critical. Mm -hmm. So when we think about people that have lost 10, 20, 40 pounds, and you can look at the weight loss registry, there's a, a, an ongoing study in, in the United States um, what they find is that people that maintain that weight loss are exercising or at least being physically active. And most of them are walking. Um, so not inducing that super hunger response, um, but doing things like metabolizing fuel appropriately, making sure that the insulin response is, you know, is working accurately, um, regenerating tissue, bringing blood, all the things that we've been talking about um, is going to be super beneficial for weight loss maintenance. Um, but it might not be great for weight loss in the beginning. Yeah, I, I've seen the, those weight loss registered. I've also seen a review on, on weight loss maintenance that suggested we don't really have the randomized control data to really prove causality. And it certainly is a marker of a commitment to a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, I think that that's really the big problem is that most of our weight loss data is if it's if it's 16 weeks, it's pretty standard. If it's a year long, you know, weight loss data, that's a really long and let me tell you, mm -hmm. very expensive study to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the data is is very, very limited on the, the causality um, mm -hmm. for long term weight loss. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right on that. One aspect of that of that paper that I thought was really interesting is they talked about um, energy flux as a potential explanation, and that again, if you're if you want to if to maintain your body weight, you need to eat you know 1,600 calories a day. That's kind of hard to do, and it's easy to overshoot by 100, 200. But if you're burning that extra 500 and your daily budget is now 2,000, it's a little you're less maybe likely to accidentally overshoot by that extra bite of power bar or whatever. You know. 
Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting too. There's some pretty good data that also show that exercisers, regular exercisers, so not people that are trying to necessarily use exercise with weight loss, um, actually regulate their food intake better than non-exercisers as well. Um, there's, you know, just the signaling between tissues and between organs that seems to be helpful. Um, but again, no really strong randomized control trials on that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's still useful to know whether it's causal or not that those who are maintaining their body weights tend to be those who are keeping up the exercise. Yeah. And, you know, I think it just goes hand in hand with all of the, um, the physiologic, you know, outcomes and consequences of exercise is these, all of these, um, processes are not necessarily about fat loss, right? So it, it is really when you exercise your body, it's about your muscles talking to your gut, your gut talking to your brain, your brain talking to your heart, your heart talking to your blood. Like it's all of these um, coordinated physiologic and metabolic um, pathways that are working that, you know, fat loss tends to be a consequence of, but not necessarily um, why your body is supposed to be exercising and moving. Mm -hmm. I know you have some expertise in uh, healthy aging. So maybe you can elaborate on this. Yeah. So I did my uh, doctoral degree at Tufts in the HNRCA, the Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging. And I was in the sarcopenia, nutrition, exercise physiology and sarcopenia lab. And it was one of the greatest experiences. Uh, We were working with people that were age 80 or older. Mm -hmm. Um, on several different studies. And one of the studies that I worked on, I loved, it was called the power study. And we would bring um, uh, frail older adults into the lab and have them exercise really aggressively. So we would put them on, you know, a leg press machine and we would have trainers that were around. They were like, one, two, three, go. And we were training them, you know, really work their muscles. And, One of the things that I loved about it is it just opened my eyes to the idea that it is never too late Mm. to start exercising. So when we were looking at these older adults and we did, you know, specific tests to determine their level of of capacity and frailty, and what we would see is those results were changing simply by doing things like strengthening their muscles, simply by doing things like adding resistance and um, power training, so that's adding a, a velocity and a speed um, element to the training. Even if you were 96 years old, it helped with things like metabolism, with things like you know, reducing falls, with things like um, increasing the ability of older adults to just get around and do activities of daily living during the day. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pretty jazzed about how powerful exercise can be throughout the entire lifespan. It was really interesting. My grandfather, who is uh, just turned 85 years old, had his knee replaced two years ago. And he called me up and he's like, Rach, he's like, I know that this is what you do for a living. He's like, but if I do exercises before I go in for my surgery, is anything actually going to happen? And I call him Pepe and I'm like, yes, of course, Pepe, you got to get out there. Like you got to walk, make sure that your muscles are strong. And he called me up after his surgery and he said, you know, my doctor said to me that my legs were so much stronger and that, that I'm going to have such a better recovery after this surgery because I did these exercises. And he was just simply walking around, you know, 
not doing, you know, aggressive exercise. But yeah, it's really, really important. Now, resistance seems to be something that's an important part of healthy aging. And of course, now with COVID, um, getting to a gym where you can add resistance is challenging. So, you know, for all populations, what are, what can we do at home for resistance? Yeah, such a good question. So strength training and resistance training has kind of about 15 years behind in the literature compared to cardiovascular exercise. Um, I think people just didn't quite realize how important muscle and muscle strength and muscle integrity were to aging and to health in general. Um, and so the data is only really just starting to emerge. And as it's coming out, it is so strong um, for long-term health and for healthy aging. Um, so yeah, adding that resistance exercise in is really important. But the cool thing is, is that it doesn't need to be a barbell or a dumbbell or any of these, you know, really heavy things. Um, it could be a rubber band. It can be your body weight. So push-ups are a really wonderful way to activate so many muscles and just use your own body weight. Body weight squats, those kinds of things. Um, can be just as beneficial. You know, it's really interesting. There's a great study out of Canada, actually, um, out of McMaster. And um, they did a study a couple of years ago and showed that the effect on muscle um, is not necessarily based upon the amount of weight that you're using, but how close you can take your muscle to fatigue. And so the way I like to describe it is you can do two bicep curls with a 100-pound dumbbell or you can do a hundred bicep curls with a two pound dumbbell. And if you get to that point just before, you know, you don't want to hurt yourself. So be careful with this. Um, but just before that muscle fatigues, what we see at the cellular level are really similar outcomes. Hmm. So using the body weight squats can be just as beneficial as, you know, putting a heavy barbell on your back loaded up with weight as long as you take that muscle to fatigue. So oh. the data on this is becoming more strong and it's really exciting. Um, and I think that, you know, it's really important to really look at resistance exercise as as we age, for sure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people have safety concerns, though, about that, especially in the elderly. So how, how do you deal with that? I mean, do you have to have a personal trainer or do you just have one to get trained and then go from there? Or, or what do you advise? Yeah, I think that that's always a good idea. You know, whenever you do something new, um, you want to make sure that you get somebody that can help you out, you know, making sure that your form is correct, making sure that you're not doing anything wonky with your body. But I think that that's true for anything. So if you were going to pick up skiing or cycling or mm-hmm. swimming, you could get somebody to give you a little bit of mm-hmm. um, a little bit of instruction. Um, and you know, when we're thinking about COVID, the internet is just blowing up of yeah. personal trainers and instructors that are looking for work. And I have had several people say to me, "I actually really like it better because it's this one-on-one instruction. They're looking at me through a screen, and they say, okay, move your leg a little bit to the left, you know, or whatever.' Um, so I think that there's, you know, a, a real interesting change in access to professionals as we are in this online streaming world. Uh, but yeah, I would recommend getting a little bit of instruction, especially if you're feeling kind of uncomfortable or you don't really know what to do. Yeah. Now, getting getting really practical here, I, I know uh, you know a lot of people in my parents' generation are feeling a bit overwhelmed that 
um, I almost feel sometimes myself like I'm playing whack-a-mole and I enjoy fitness, but it's like, okay, I've got to be flexible. I've got to do cardiovascular. I've got to do strength. And I, if I focus on one, then the other ones are going to, you know, be neglected. So how do you prioritize amongst all those different aspects of physical health? Yeah, I think it's such a good question. And I think it's really important to distinguish the difference between training for something and training for life. Mm. So when we think about, you know, just being a healthy human and training for life, you need to find the exercise that you're going to do that you enjoy, that you're going to keep coming back for. That's the mm. most important part of physical activity or exercise that you can um, consider. So if you hate it, you go to a, you know, hit class, a high intensity interval training class, or you start doing strength training and you're just like, this is miserable and I don't like it. You're not going to keep going back to it. So finding that thing that you love is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. After that, adding a little bit of variety is always going to be really important. So when we think about, you know, let's say for example, resistance training, Doing the same thing every day with the same weights without changing is not, although it's going to be beneficial, it's not going to be um, a way for you to increase your physical fitness. It's not going to change your body um, in major ways, which is why maybe back to your first, your last question, it's probably a good idea to get a little bit of guidance on this so that you've got some kind of progression. Mm -hmm. um, we have this, mentality in the fitness and wellness world. And I'll, um, I'll just say that I, I do a lot of my work in the fitness and wellness world. I'd like to say I walk the talk. Um, I, this idea of, you know, muscle confusion and, you know, you need to be doing all kinds of different things in order to, you know, get your body so that it doesn't get used to it. I, that's just not true. <laughs> in fact, there's no data to show that that's actually anything. Um, finding a really steady routine with something that you love that's going to either progressively get harder or change in subtle ways. So I'll use um, maybe cycling as an example. Mm -hmm. So you want to use, do some cycling, going out for um, a 10 mile ride and then take a day off and then going out for a 20 mile ride and then take a day off and then going out for a 10 mile ride with some hills. All of those things as you progress, to, you know, whatever your goal is, maybe it's a 50 mile ride or something like that. That's going to be really important. Um, but going out and doing uh, a ride and then a run and then a lift and then, a, you know, a hit class and then a med ball workout, none of those things are going to help you become a better cyclist. Um, and in fact, you might actually injure yourself because you're, you know, utilizing all of these different modalities um, without consistency. Mm -hmm. So, Finding the thing that you love, working in a progressive fashion, and um, having some consistency, I think, are the most important things when you're thinking about a training protocol. But I guess th thinking about myself, you know, I, I really enjoy spin classes. So I hope I can attend one of yours one day. Um, oh, but then I feel yeah. then I feel this while I'm neglecting, you know, flexibility. I'm losing. I feel like getting less flexible every day. So I should go to yoga, which I do enjoy once I actually get there but how do I fit all that in my week and I feel like oh I need to go to the gym to actually do my strength training so I guess I've got my one thing that I know I'm going to show up for but that I have this sense that well, I should do all these other things too to, to make sure I have I'm um, not you know deteriorating um, and you know ideally gaining on these other dimensions as well I think one of the uh, most important things again is consistency 
So if you are going to do a spin class and a yoga class and do your weight training and do your flexibility training, having a kind of schedule where those things are going to work together and also progress together is really important. But I wouldn't do them randomly at any given moment, right? So like some days I'm going to go do this, some days I'm going to do that, some days I'm going to go do this. Um, you're just not going to see that physiologic progression that you would mm-hmm. see otherwise. Mm-hmm. Now, if you also have, you know, exercise, um, you know, like you just need that variety in your life, that's fine. Just make sure that you're not doing things where, you know, um, I know, for example, with cycling, my um, hips and my low back are really tight. And then I'll go to a yoga class and that particular yoga teacher is like, we're going to spend 45 minutes doing forward folds and it's really not good for me or for my back. Um, You know, being really careful about using these modalities together so that they are being beneficial Mm -hmm. and not being detrimental based upon what you do regularly. Mm -hmm. What advice do you give to your, uh, to your parents or did you say it was your grandfather? Father, yeah. Um, to them, again, if they feel like they, they have minimal sort of capacity to, to do, they have to go really easy, but I mean, which, again, which dimensions do you, as you get, you know, incrementally older, does it, does it change which ones you want to prioritize or is it just about pick one, be consistent and then add others are sort of a bonus? Yeah, I think that that's probably the right way to go about it. Um, I will say, and I'll give a plug to strength training as you get older. Um, I think it could be. Uh, a bit more beneficial to aging muscle than cardiovascular exercise. That being said, and I think this is really important when you look at each of those mo- these modalities, they're each going to do something very different to your body. Mm-hmm. So strength training is not going to allow you to run a marathon. Training right. for a marathon is not going to allow you to lift a very heavy weight. So training these different systems is very important. Um, However, doing them um, consistently and so that they work well together is really important. But I think, yeah, as you get a little bit older, I would definitely encourage people to do more strength training than we have previously recommended. Um, The data is there. It's really great. The safety data is way better than people give it credit for. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we see specifically with older adults and strength training is actually really good. How can people um, make you know well-informed choices given all of the m- sort of massive information of you know questionable quality that's out there? Yeah, it's such a good question, and it's something that I work really hard on um, because there is such questionable quality in exercise, in nutrition. Everybody now has a camera and a, you know a ring light and a platform on Instagram. Um, Finding a qualified person to give you advice is really important. However, and this is part of what I, you know, am doing with my my job, is unfortunately healthcare professionals, and I think this is part of the problem, don't get educated on exercise and nutrition and the other, you know, behaviors that we know to be so beneficial. Um, and if they do, it's very minimal. So finding somebody that has some specific training in these places. And I would say the training, I would lean people more toward a degree than a certification, although the certifications can be great. 
um, if people are really doing their homework. Um, I think that, you know, finding the first thing is finding a qualified professional to give you information. The second is the data in exercise and nutrition has been much more consistent than people ever want to give it credit for. So nutrition is much more challenging than exercise where it's like, we're on a low fat diet one day and then we're on a high fat diet the next day. And then we're intermittent fasting and you know, everything is just kind of bouncing all over the place. The good thing with exercise is it has been fairly consistent and we're just finding out more and more wonderful things about exercise. Mm -hmm. So when they release in the U.S. the physical activity guidelines for Americans, what we're seeing is that every 10 years that they've been, you know, come out twice, um, the data is not changing. It's just getting stronger. So um, I think with exercise, you can be pretty, um, you can be pretty confident that if you do it, it's going to be beneficial. Um, if you find a qualified person to help you, like I said, consistency, finding something that you love, some kind of progression. Um, you're going to stay safe and you're going to have sort of a long-term benefit from it. Um, so what you said there just twigged another question for me since I think my brother was asking me about this once. Thoughts on high versus low intensity um, exercise. And mm -hmm. I, I imagine they just have different benefits. So what would be, you know, what are the different benefits of each? Yeah, I get this question all the time. Like, should I work out really hard? Um, the answer is sometimes it's probably beneficial to work out hard. Um, but again, this idea of progression and consistency, you can't work out hard all the time. If you do, you're going to get injured. Um, you're going to get tired. You're going to, you know, eventually fatigue and feel pretty crappy. So again, when we look at the literature, especially for, let's say, strength training, we've got this principle of progressive overload. You get things, you go a little bit harder, you go a little bit harder, you go a little bit harder, and then you take it way down a notch. When we're thinking about physical activity and health, that's kind of a different ballgame. So low intensity exercise can be quite beneficial for health outcomes if we're talking about, you know, all the things that we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation, glucose metabolism, turning over tissue, um, you know, bringing blood to, uh, to different tissues in the body, that signaling between um, uh, different organs, brain health, mental health. Low intensity exercise has been shown to be very beneficial for that. So I think the goal is really going to determine whether or not high intensity or low intensity exercise is really what you want to do mm -hmm. added to what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Like what can you commit to? Um, if you hate high intensity interval training, you don't need to do it. Like you don't need to torture yourself. Some people thrive on that. You know, they love the loud music. They love just the breathlessness. Um, and I would say those people probably also need to get comfortable with some lower intensity activity. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, you don't have to do that in order to see the beneficial effects. Mm -hmm. For the sake of time, I think we'll have to wrap up here. Um, and maybe just give you an opportunity to, you know, any last thoughts on advice for those who are sedentary and looking to, to start moving, um, anything we haven't covered today that you wanted to shout out or, or resources that you maybe wanted to um, advocate that people look into? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, we kind of covered it a little bit, but I think one of the most important things is really this idea that you need to find something that you're going to 
perceive um, as a gift. That's a, Michelle Seagar at the University of Michigan says that all the time. Um, if you don't perceive your movement in your day as a gift, if you look at it as a chore, you're not going to do it. And so I think that that would be the number one thing. And if you're moving your body, you're not doing it wrong. <laughs> so yes, there are a million different things that you could be doing, but mm -hmm. just moving is the most important thing. I love that. I definitely um, see my my movement as a gift. So I, I and I really yeah. wish others could discover that too. It makes me so sad when they see it as a chore instead. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's an unfortunate consequence of the marketing that we have done for exercise. That it it's yeah. about body, it's about weight, it's about aesthetics. Um, when that couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was a real pleasure chatting with you, Rachel. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so yeah. much for having me.